Hello and welcome to Queerest Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And today we're talking about Sally Ride, the first American woman in space. We have some content warnings before we get started on this episode. We're going to be discussing periotypical homophobia and sexism. We're also going to be discussing cancer and death from cancer, as well as deaths in the Columbia and Challenger spacecraft disasters. We've never been to space before on this podcast. We have never been to space. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, please feel free to skip this one and listen to one of our other episodes, which won't have any space. That's true. No. They will have other content warnings, but none of them will be about space. True. This is not the episode that we had planned to bring out today. Uh, We had planned to do a retrospective of queer historical films in 2019, just like we did for January 1st last year. But Jason is close to death, by which we mean they have glandular and cannot do anything. Uh, So we had to do this instead. It's happened very quickly. Please be kind. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Emergency episode. Emergency space episode. Yes. I picked this topic for this episode because in our recent Patreon poll, in which they picked Harry Allen, which was the first episode of the season, this topic came second. So I hope that they enjoy this accidental twofer. Yeah. I do think it is somewhat fortuitous, and I'm quite excited, though, that our first episode about space and an episode focused on sort of stepping into the future technologically is coming out today, which, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, is January 1st of a new decade of 2020. Oh, that's true. That's true. Mm. 2020, that's still weird. It a is fake still year. Weird. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. It is a pretty fake year. Sally Ride was born on the 26th of May, 1951, to Joyce and Dale Ride in California. Two years later, her sister was born, and her sister was named Karen, but she was always called Bear because of Sally's childhood mispronunciation of it. Are you just telling us this because it's a very endearing fact? <laughs> uh, also because I felt weird, like, not calling her Bear throughout because that's how she's generally known. But okay, I thought that yeah. you might be like, Bear, is that a normal name in America? And then I'd have to tell the story anyway. So okay, I'm yeah, fair. that question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the family was quite a, a taciturn one. They were uncomfortable with discussing or expressing emotion. But it's clear that both of the girls grew up to be very, very loved and supported. Both of the parents supported the burgeoning civil rights movement and the counterculture of the time. And they were very in favour of women expanding their opportunities. Sally credits her engagement in science partly to the fact that she was never told by a parent or a teacher that science was just for boys, as well as the fact that she had multiple female science teachers who had a big impact on her. That's very good. Mm. A good and wholesome start. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's a like decently wholesome episode. Sally does pretty well in school, particularly in math and science, as you would expect. The Rides are a religious family. Both Joyce and Dale are involved in the Presbyterian Church as elders, Sally decided to stop going when she was a teenager, and they didn't put up a fuss with Joyce saying, church is no good if you have to force someone to go. Which I think is, like, nice. What a good and wholesome family. Yeah, Yeah, this is just very good. Sally was also a gifted athlete, especially at tennis, and she was soon playing in tennis tournaments with other girls in their teens. This group of girls included Tam O'Shaughnessy, who would much later in life be her partner for 27 years. Ah. That's... Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also just feel like Sally sounds like she was a very intimidating high schooler. If I was in school with her, I would have been like, oh, she's... I want to be her or something. <laughs> I don't know. Like, she does well at school, but she's not, like, a genius or anything okay. like that. She, I think, like, if a class didn't really interest her, she didn't get, like, why it would benefit her. She just was not interested and she wouldn't really pay attention to it. Yeah. Uh, she, I remember, really didn't like her mech in particular, because she said, can you imagine cooking and eating a tuna casserole at 8 a.m.? <laughs> uh, yeah. Sally lived at a time of enormous change for American society, both socially and technologically. She grew up with the background of the Cold War, learning to hide under her desk at school and duck and cover drills. The most relevant part of the Cold War for our story is, of course, the space race. Because of space. <laughs> because of space, yes. <laughs> In 1957, Moscow launched Sputnik 1 into space. The first satellite launched from Earth, and the space race begins. The launch had a profound impact on the American psyche, threatening their perception of American supremacy, (laughs) which is important to them. Australia's never been a 
world leader in anything. Anything, no. Unrelatable, (laughs) frankly. Russia then launched the second Sputnik, carrying a dog at this time called Laika. Space dog. I don't have anything to say there. Space astronaut. I just feel like there should be... dog astronaut. Dog cosmonaut. (laughs) Yes. Dogmanaut. (laughs) The US launched its first satellite in 1958, and the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics was replaced with... Who knows what NASA stands for? National... Yep. Aerospace. Nope. You told me this like three days ago. Did I? You did. Ah, no excuses then. What is it? National... Uh, Do you want me to repeat the previous name? Okay. Yes. So it was the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Do you want to have a guess (laughs) and I'll tell you which one's more right? All right, right. Alice? National Advisory... All right. I'll give you a freebie. The S stands for space. I was... <laughs> I was tossing out whether the S would stand for space or science. National no, Aerospace Association. Irene, <laughs> <laughs> do you want to have a go? I don't know. National Association of Space Adventures. <laughs> <laughs> um... It is the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Oh, okay. Okay, I never would have guessed administration. I remember when you told me this the other day, thinking, oh, administration, I wouldn't have picked that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I immediately forgot that information. And its goal was to send a man into space. The space race was in part motivated by uh, what Lyndon B. Johnson, who was president from 1963 to 1969, called the fear of going to bed each night by the light of a communist moon. <laughs> Calm down, Lyndon. <laughs> so it's that sort of general fear that, like, there's something in the sky and that something is the Russians. <laughs> I'm thinking of that Tumblr post that goes around that's like, the moon is a trans lesbian and she loves you. Imagine if she'd been a trans communist lesbian. <laughs> you don't know that she's not. True. You don't know what the moon's up to. But also by just wonder about this new frontier of technology, which is much more wholesome than yeah. the Red Scare. The final frontier. Yeah. I mean, probably not. What's the next frontier? Mm. We're still doing a lot of under the sea, honestly. That's true. There's a lot of under the sea we haven't really looked into that deeply. There's also a lot of space (laughs) we haven't looked into that deeply. Arguably more space. A lot more space. Infinitely expanding space. (laughs) We've definitely proved that there is more space than sea. (laughs) (laughs) Astronomy with Eli. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am hosting this episode. What of it? I did a history degree. I was the best physicist in my year in high school. Okay, wow. well, impressive. you're qualified. But only in high school. The first astronauts were immediately valorized as patriotic heroes. They were recruited from military test pilots, largely because they were already cleared for national security and they seemed to have relevant experience <laughs> insofar as anyone had relevant experience of being an astronaut at this point. They were kind of like, I guess you've flown a bit. But what if you flew unimaginably far? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And those two qualifications sort of just expedited the process and meant they could hopefully get a guy into space quicker than the Russians. There had been female pilots by this stage, uh, including those who had played key and dangerous roles during World War II, but after the war they were banned from being military pilots until the 1970s and from combat until 2013. Until 2013? Yes. Yes. That's so recent. It is quite recent. I guess I vaguely do remember that, like, conversation happening in 2013. Yes. The restriction to military test pilots, therefore, made it a given that they are going to all be men. Yeah. Yeah. Female pilots lobbied to be allowed to take the tests to become astronauts and were denied. And it should be noted that although it was never official policy, they all selected white men as well. Naturally. Mm. When you say they all selected white men... Did that happen in the, like, astronaut selection process or were the pilots predominantly white men already? Oh, well, certainly predominantly. I believe that there were men of colour who were pilots in, say, like, World War II, but I don't know for sure. On April 12th of 1961, Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space. If it wasn't clear from the name, he is Russian and not American. He is my boy Yuri. I love him. Yeah, it was the 50th anniversary of Yuri going into space. And I got home and my family were all like crowded around the TV watching the TV like, oh my God, it's the 50th anniversary of Yuri going into space. And I was like, why, why are you all obsessed with Yuri Gagarin? When did this happen? <laughs> why were you excluded from the, yeah, from the Yuri, Yuri Club? Gagarin uh, meetings? I don't know. Obviously, <laughs> I just was not invited until I happened to come home early and walk in on one. <laughs> the meeting, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we were ready to pack up. <laughs> 
Soon it will be the 60th anniversary. Yeah. That's true. You'll know this time. Yeah, I'll be ready. (laughs) You're going to throw a party? I'll bake a space cake. A life-size cutout? (laughs) Anyway. Is that the cake? Is it a a life-size Yuri cake? cake? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) On May 5th, the US put their first man, Alan Shepard, into space. And on the 20th of February, 1962, John Glenn became the first American man to reach orbit. The issue of women going into space continued to be one that was discussed. There were still women pushing for this and being knocked back. A House subcommittee had a hearing to settle the question of female astronauts, and John Glenn, the first American man to reach orbit, testified and said, I think this gets back to the way our social order is organised. The men go off and fight the wars and fly the airplanes and come back and help design and build and test them. The fact that women are not in the field is a fact of our social order. It may be undesirable. Yeah, true. Okay. True. It may be undesirable. Oh, no, he means, like, women going into space. Oh, I thought he meant that our, that, that, no. that fact of our social order is undesirable. I, I was wondering what the hell you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, we were just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. It's no, I, I believe what he meant was, like, well, it's just a fact that women's role is not to be in space. Ah, uh, okay. We've immediately gendered space. Yeah, yeah, we, we haven't been there yet, but we've given it an agenda. They have been there now. I guess Glenn that, has been there. Glenn himself. himself has been there. That's why he's allowed yeah. to talk at this meeting. Yeah. He was like, I went out into space. I didn't see any women. Oh, right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the man was there. A communist lesbian. He looked the other way. In 1963, the test pilot requirement was removed. In 1965, you didn't need to know how to fly at all. NASA started seeking non-pilot scientists, but still turned down every woman who applied. In 1963, Russia sent Valentina Tereshkova into space. The American response was very condescending. They belittled her background as a factory textile worker and a skydiver. Valentina was never sent up again, and the Soviets didn't send up another woman for 20 years. She's my other favourite cosmonaut. I love her too. How far down does your ranking of favourite astronauts go? I think only cosmonauts are on the list. Though Sally Ride will probably be on the yeah, list. Yeah, no, no, no. I like Sally Ride and I like Laika. <laughs> <laughs> Laika is my other favourite cosmonaut. So there's four. Yeah, yeah. On the 20th of July 1969, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon and an American flag was planted there. Sally had no astronaut ambitions at this point, although she did watch the moon landing. How old was she at this point? When was she born? Uh, she was 18-ish. Okay. Yeah. okay. Okay. Quite big. She said later, I just assumed there would never be a place for women. When I saw them on TV, they all seemed to be Navy or Air Force test pilots. I suppose I just took it for granted that it was pretty much a closed club. To return to Sally, in 1970, after a stint trying to make it as a professional tennis player, she enrolled at Stanford, where she majored in physics. At the time, 6% of physics degrees were awarded to women and about 3% of physics doctoral candidates were. I wonder um, how many it is now. Yeah, I don't know. More. I love the step from, I'm not really making it as a professional tennis player. I guess I'll go to Stanford. Like, Be a physicist? Stanford seems intense, right? I feel like being like, I'm going to make it as a professional tennis player. I'm going to go to a very good university are just like similar levels of intensity. Yeah, yeah. But they're just similar levels of intense in, like, entirely different fields. She's like, tennis isn't working out. I'll try physics. But she's been interested in science yeah. the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Sally does well, not amazingly. She gets, like, A's and B's sort of thing. Uh, in 1973, she graduated with a BS in physics, and she had double majored in English literature, so she's also awarded a BA. Oh. Uh, her honours thesis in English was on the theme of grace in Shakespeare's Hamlet and the Tempest. Cool. She's multi-talented. She is, yeah. yeah. She is smarter than me. But, I don't know. I find it kind of reassuring that she's just getting, like, normal good marks. Yeah. Yeah, she's not like, wow, you're incredible. She's like, yeah, you're, you're doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, maybe we could go to space. We're not going to space now. I looked up on Wikipedia the other day at work when I was super dead. I looked up all the, like, medical complications of being in zero gravity for a long time, and I was like, I'm never going to space. <laughs> oh, yeah, it messes you up really badly. Yeah. Like your bones and your organs. Yeah. So like most of you. Like most yeah, of like you. most of you. Your body. Like, yeah. 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 I would go to space. All right. Someone handed you a free ticket to space right now. Would you go to space? I'm not sure. I feel like I'd need to like hear more about the risks of space. I don't want to be a space pioneer. Yeah. Like, thanks, Sally. <laughs> but it's not for you. <laughs> yeah. Very impressive, but not for me. Sally then got a master's in physics with her research focusing on the free electron laser. Please don't ask me any questions about the free <laughs> Is it a communist? I I don't know. I mean, I really don't. 
don't. <laughs> For her doctorate, she worked on modeling the interstellar medium, which is just like all the stuff in between stars. Okay. All of the gases and stuff and rays just around in space. I apologize to any and all astrophysicists who listen to this episode. She later told Tam that when she finished her dissertation, quote, she sat back and realized that she knew something that no one else in the world knew. That's so cool, frankly. Mm. That's pretty great, yeah. Yeah. Sally had her first relationship uh, at college with John Tompkins, who was just a fellow researcher, but eventually they broke it off. And after that, Sally began a relationship with Molly Tyson, who she had known as a teen through tennis. Uh, so both of the women that Sally has a relationship with in her life, she knows as a teen playing tennis. So tennis is for queer women. So she reconnects with Molly at Stanford and they start a relationship. Neither of them had had a relationship with a woman before. They move in together eventually. And although they never discuss whether it would be a secret or not, it was just a given that no one could know. Mm-hmm. Molly said, I think it's possible Sally and I were obsessed with each other for a long time before we had anything physical. Eventually it dawned on us that something was going on. This was in 1971, so homosexuality was still illegal in many states, including California. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 1970, a gay students' union had been founded at Stanford, but it was held off campus and most people, many people, tried to remain anonymous. Do you know if Sally or Molly were members of the gay student union? Molly and Sally didn't know any other gay couples or other gay people, and they didn't look for peers. Uh, Molly again says... In our ignorance, we probably would have put them in the category of those icky people. They were not like us. We didn't want to be associated with our idea of what gay people were like. And she notes that neither of them understood themselves as gay or as queer at the time. Uh, So she says, It's a pretty familiar story that with a person's first relationship, you're absolutely certain that this does not mean you're gay, that it has nothing to do with being gay. You're in love with a particular person, and you're not generalizing it to say, Oh, okay, I've now learned something about myself. I feel like this is definitely something that I've encountered before is people sort of talking about they have this idea that like the same gender attraction they have is pure in some way that gay people as they conceptualize them are not. Yeah, like how she used the word icky there. Yeah, yeah. But she's just like in love with Sally. Yeah. Yeah. Molly assumed that the relationship would end when college ended. And that she would marry a man and have kids. Mm. Mm-hmm. In 1975, Molly broke up with Sally. Um, she felt that she was living in her shadow and also having to keep their relationship a secret weighed on her. Molly said to Sally's biographer, I want to make it clear that it was a very fun time. And I want the bad guy in your story to be a world that makes it so hard for people who love each other to be together. Thankfully, that is changing. After Molly and Sally broke up, Sally got into a relationship with a guy named Bill Colson. Uh, he was a friend of theirs who Sally had told about their relationship. Bill is confident that they initially genuinely fell in love and that she was, quote, a willing and fully participating partner in their relationship. Just out of interest, do you know what happened to Molly later in life? Did she marry uh, a man? Or... Oh, we'll find out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do we know anything about what Sally felt about Bill then? It's an ongoing theme when reading about Sally that we don't know what Sally thought about anything. Okay. She was a very, very private person. She wasn't really game to discuss her personal feelings to a large extent, even within her most intimate relationships. She didn't really keep any kind of personal notes. We don't really have virtually anything from her point of view on anything. So that's just something that you have to work around. Okay. Okay. I guess I wanted to introduce that quote from Bill because I often see Sally referred to as a lesbian. Yeah. And she very well could have been one. But from what I can see, there's no way for us to really know that with any degree of certainty. And I wanted us to veer away from just labeling her as a lesbian because she's going to have her most significant relationship in her life with a woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, That in and of itself is not enough to make her a lesbian. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It could be that Bill and another male partner of hers later on are mistaken in thinking that Sally felt genuinely for them. It could be that she realized later on that she'd felt pressured to do that by society and that she really would have preferred to be friends with them or something like that. It could even genuinely be like sometimes people are, you know, attracted to men at some points in their life and then identify as lesbians at other sure. times in their life. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't think anything we could come out of there except for Sally's own testimony that we've just discussed we will never have mm. is going to tell us what Sally felt later in her life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to note that, not to assert that Sally was definitely bisexual instead, but just because it is very much the norm to talk about Sally, the lesbian astronaut, and I don't feel comfortable doing that. Yeah, no, that's totally reasonable. In 1977, uh, while she was working on a doctorate, she was planning on doing a postdoc in laser physics. 
And then she picked up the paper one morning and read the headline, NASA to recruit women. <laughs> and she was like, it's me. It's me. NASA <laughs> to recruit me. Exactly. That's exactly what she was like. She tore the article out. She sent off her application in January of 1977, along with 8,000 other applicants. And she was invited to Houston for an interview, one of 208 candidates invited That's to this next stage. So bold. Like, I can't imagine seeing an article in the newspaper being like, NASA looking for women and being like, oh, yeah, I'll give it a shot. Yeah, but so you don't have a now. PhD yeah, in true. physics. And How does she at this point? True. <laughs> she's working on it. Yeah, she's working on it. She knows stuff about the interstellar medium. I mean, I assume that was quite a complex application process, but the idea that you just pick up the paper and see, like, NASA recruiting women and just, like, send off your application is like... Yeah, like, mail them your resume. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that that's not how it happens now. <laughs> I mean, that's quite a process that she goes yeah. yeah, I assume she's now going to enter a yeah. complex, like, security clearance and interview process. So they go to Houston in 10 groups. Sally's the only woman in hers. And she undergoes a physical test, a psychological test, an interview by panel. And after the interview, she goes back to her dissertation. She's waiting for the whole of the year, really. During that year, she sees the first Star Wars film. She likes it because she gets a poster of it up in her office. <laughs> very good, very good. And then in January of 1978, she gets a call and is offered a job at NASA. Wow. I like how she just saw a Star Wars film and there's a new Star Wars film now as well. Yeah, there sure is, yeah. Anyway, she works for NASA now. She does. Sorry to derail that exciting moment in her life by talking about Star Wars. <laughs> uh, so again, what does NASA stand for? National... Aeronautical and Space Administration. Is that right? Yes. 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 <laughs> well, like, it's, it's close. It's oh, National okay. Aeronautics and Space Administration, but, like, I'll give it to okay, you. Okay, okay, that'll do, yeah. Sally finishes and defends her dissertation. She and Bill, who had been together for two years by this point, went off to Houston. Sally's going to be an astronaut. And is Bill just, like, coming along? Yeah, to, like, coming along. Yeah. Live in Houston with her? Yeah. Cool. I mean, if your wife was like, I'm going to be an astronaut. <laughs> you wouldn't be like, okay, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're not married. Oh, yeah. Uh, just a quick note. Sally's sister, Bear, becomes a Presbyterian minister, one of the first women to become a oh. Presbyterian minister. So they're both groundbreaking in their yeah. respective fields. What a powerful family. Yeah. And their mother, Joyce, said, well, one of them is going to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> so witty, too. Mm. Yeah, Joyce sounds great. She sounds yeah. like a real character. I like it. Yeah. So Sally is now entering two years of training to become an astronaut. This is actually halved due to how good the trainees are. Oh, nice. Yeah. So she's in a group of 35 and they nickname themselves the 35 New Guys or TFNG. A <laughs> That's... play on what the recruits are normally called, which is those effing new guys. I see. <laughs> I was going to say that's a pretty lame nickname, but like once it you explain why, yeah. I was like, oh yeah, okay. The group included six women, uh, three black men, and one Asian man. So oh, it's oh. like deliberately more diverse than yeah. previous generations of astronauts. Is what happened that NASA just got to this point and they were like, we need to like yeah. diversify. And then they started putting ads in the paper like, yes. are you, you know, yeah. are you a woman? Are you a person of color? Come and be an astronaut. Yeah, literally, yes. yes. Cool. Yeah. Good job, NASA. So she trains to be an astronaut it's about what you'd expect there's long days of scientific lectures there's a lot of study of training manuals so she learns all of the 1800 switches and circuit breakers on the orbiter's control panel they train with weightlessness so first in a pool in scuba gear and then in the kc-135 cargo plane i don't know if that's conventionally how that name is said but that's how i said it which was known as the vomit comet ah yes i've heard of the vomit comet yes i want to go in it <laughs> <laughs> I like space. She enjoyed weightlessness. She didn't get sick. Oh, that's and good. And she learned to parachute and trained in water survival because you might crash into the sea. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. I thought it was just going to be water survival because that's as close as we can get to space survival while we're on Earth. Oh, uh, I like... assume that. I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense too. I mean, my space survival, you fly out the space craft, you die. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true. There's no point no. training in space survival. Sally and her fellow women had to deal with constant sexism at NASA. Men there were often shocked to be challenged by a woman or just dismissed them out of hand. The agency was also notoriously homophobic. At the time when Sally was there, there was a gay couple at NASA, not astronauts, uh, but doing a different job. And they bought two separate houses on two separate streets that backed onto each other rather than risk being found out living together. Wow. Mm. So that's where we're at. Cool. As with many things in Sally's life, we don't know how she felt about 
the climate at NASA. Um, but she did become fiercely dedicated and loyal to the organization as well as to her fellow astronauts. I and mean, she's with them constantly in a very yeah. intense environment. Like these are the people she socializes with as well. And she also adopts the sort of like steely, cool veneer of the rest of the NASA crew. She starts wearing aviators and a leather jacket. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Yeah. Uh, that's very good. Her first real project she's assigned to is dealing with the shuttle's robot arm, so the remote manipulator system. We're going to learn that NASA really likes, like, acronyms. Yeah. That is designed to lift satellites into orbit and then retrieve them. So the team is basically figuring out its constraints and its flaws and developing it for future use with them. In 1979, Sally and Bill break up, and Sally starts a relationship with Steve Hawley, who is one of her class of astronauts Mm -hmm. Uh, Steve was an astronomer who had been doing a postdoc when he applied to NASA they both really loved their jobs they also both loved Star Trek and sports and practical jokes and seemed to have been a good match sounds nice Steve like Bill thinks that Sally felt genuinely about that relationship and entered into it in good faith for what it's worth okay I don't have much reason to doubt what these people I don't have any reason to doubt it, but I also think it's very possible for somebody to, like, enter into a relationship sincerely. Oh, yeah. And, like, still come out later in life feeling that they are a lesbian. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that means Sally's not a lesbian. I'm just saying, like, I'm at this point I have no reason to believe that she wasn't entering into these relationships in good faith. Yeah. In 1980, NASA rolled out the space shuttle program. So the shuttles are the first reusable yeah. spacecrafts. It's kind of like if you picture I think like if we picture what we think a spacecraft is now we kind of just have the right of it so it consists of the orbiter which essentially just looks like a plane. Yeah. the part that the crew like lives and works in and then there's an external fuel tank and two rocket boosters and so it all blasts off and then the rocket boosters help with the initial lift off and then they fall away into the sea where they're brought back and used again. And oh, those get reused. Yes. I didn't know they got cool, reused. Cool, I thought those just got lost. Yeah, I thought no, they just they kind of... Get them. Oh, cool. I mean, <laughs> I guess they're them. probably expensive. Mm. Yeah. And then the fuel tank uh, breaks away and burns up in Earth's atmosphere. And then you're in space. Woo. Woo. Very good. Yeah. Sally becomes a capsule communicator for the second shuttle mission, which is probably, like, the best job next to actually being in space. So basically what that is is, you know, if you've ever seen a movie where they're like, Houston, we have a problem, the people who <laughs> apply are the capsule communicators. Oh, okay. 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 So for the first time, a woman is Houston. Oh, that's cool. exciting. She's chosen in large part due to her experience with the robotic arm, which is now being used in a mission. Yeah. She trains for the position for three months. She goes through like, hundreds of simulations. And then the space shuttle Columbia goes into orbit in November of 1981, and she talks Commander Joe Engel and pilot Dick Trilly through using the robotic arm, and she does very well, and it's successful. To what extent do you think NASA chooses these people for their, like, communication skills? Like, do you think they choose people who will be, like, calm and communicate clearly in an emergency? Or is it the more than... I just wonder what their, like, priorities are, whether it's the, like knowledge of how it works or the communication i, I, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah. when you're nasa you look for someone who takes all the boxes yeah and find them. sally is all of these things sally is very impressive she's great yeah, yeah. Great. what a polymath i mean one of her like things that she's mathing there is like just having it together so i think that's an underrated skill honestly like, yeah but it's not a discipline the way that like use of robotic arm is so it's just amusing in that context yeah <laughs> So NASA decides that they're going to send a woman up on the next mission. And of the six women who are candidates, Sally quickly becomes the focus of the conversation. She's an expert in the robot arm. She's competent. She's calling under pressure. She gets along with everyone. She's great. So on April 19th of 1982, Sally is told that she's been selected. Cool. That's very exciting. Mm. Do we know anything about her reaction? Or like, uh, She was pleased. Yeah. I mean, obviously she was pleased. <laughs> She's yeah. been at this for like years now, so presumably. They held a press conference a week later and Sally is bombarded with questions, many of them sexist and inane. Basically, they're also trying to get this like juicy headline out of her and she refuses to give it to them. They're just being very professional, very cool. And I'm Wearing her like, cool aviators. Maybe, who knows. <laughs> yeah. So someone asked her, will the flight affect your reproductive organs? She replied, there's no evidence of that. Well, there's not. No one else has no. been in space with her reproductive organs before. That's oh, true. Oh, no, that's not true. Valentina's no. been. Yeah, Valentina's yeah. been. Yeah, and she's presumably fine. Another person asked her, do you weep when things go wrong on the job? She says, how come nobody ever asks Rick those questions? <laughs> <laughs> 
good. She's asked if she's planning to have children, and, and she first tries to brush the question off, but then when she's asked again, she says, you notice that I'm not answering that, right? When asked if she thought that the media attention was disproportionate, she said, I think maybe it's too bad that our society isn't further along and this is such a big deal. I think it's time that people realise that women in this country can do any job they want to do. She sounds like she handled that incredibly well. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. 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 I mean, we understand that NASA selected her for her people skills, partly. That's right? true. I yeah. mean, they would have been considering, like, how will she deal with the media yeah. when they chose her. Mm. Yeah, like, I guess that is part of her job, to yeah. some extent. Yeah, unfortunately. I will note as well that her, like, fellow astronauts seem like a pretty good group of people. Like, they would, like, deflect questions away from her and kind of, like, take some of the heat wherever they could to make that easier for her. Oh, that's good. Which is good. She also had to deal with a lot of stupid questions from NASA. So an engineer who was working on the space toilet asked her and um, some of the other women who were from, like, six women from her group, what if all the mucus that women put out will stop up the toilet? And they just sort of (laughs) stared at him and were like, what mucus <laughs> yeah <laughs> so what like at least if you had no knowledge of how like female reproductive organs worked at least he asked I guess <laughs> he was like I've come up with a concern and I'm going to inquire about it but like I guess the thing that gets me is not knowing but having a complete lack of shame and just like asking this question i mean he kind of has to like on some level like their safety depends on it i think that probably the best thing to do would be to speak to like a gynecologist or something about yeah. that instead of just pestering yeah 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 i guess that's what i was getting at is yeah yeah maybe do your research before you ask these random yeah. and uninformed questions like sally and the other women are not the only people who know how female reproductive organs work on the planet yeah. Yes. They also put together a new toiletries kit because the old, like, standard issue one had, like, old spice shaving cream and men's hair tonic and so forth, so they made a lady version. <laughs> um, it included something that NASA called female hair restraints, which were just hair ties. Hair <laughs> so, that, again, with NASA just having to give everything, like, a name. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, I understand. This is a NASA thing. This is a NASA thing. And then, obviously, there's the issue of menstruation, which clearly befuddles and terrifies the men at NASA. So they asked Sally how many tampons she'd need for a week-long flight. Would 100 be the right number? And she says, no, that, that's not the right number. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that story before, and I never knew if it was true or not, that like, they did ask that's her true. this. There's some stuff that people say she got asked that is seems like to be kind of folklore. Yeah, um, yeah. So the biographer I read, for example, noted that people often say that Sally was asked if she'd wear a bra in space, and Sally can't recall ever being asked that. Oh, yeah. So, but, like, she was asked as, like, a bunch of nonsense. Yeah. yeah. And I guess maybe, like, will she wear a bra in space was probably a question that, like, people were asking, just yeah. maybe not specifically to Sally. Yeah. I mean, I guess in zero gravity, I wouldn't wear a bra. Maybe she won't wear a bra in space. Yeah. Does that make you want to go to space more? (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't considered that. I mean, I don't feel that, like, the average man's knowledge of menstruation has greatly improved since then. No. I would not expect the average person who doesn't menstruate to know how many tampons someone would need. There's also just, like, such wide variety between people who menstruate. That's true. Like, not 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 that that much. Not that (laughs) much. Yeah, no. Anyway, there are five astronauts on the mission. It takes them a full year to train. Sally's job was going to be to use the robotic arm to launch satellites, as well as to be the flight engineer, monitoring for any possible anomalies. So she had to know every contingency procedure in and out. They ran simulation after simulation after simulation until emergency procedures became second nature to them. In July of 1982, Sally and Steve got married. Oh. Um, they both wore white jeans. <laughs> oh, wow. It's 1982. It's 1982. Are there photos? I don't know. It's in Steve's backyard. <laughs> it's casual. Um, white jeans. White jeans. Two ministers officiated, Sally's sister Bear and Steve's father, who was also a Presbyterian minister. Bizarrely, they break a glass and say muzzle tov. Okay. Uh, which at first made me assume that Steve is Jewish, but then it mentioned that Steve's father's Presbyterian minister, so it doesn't appear to be Jewish. Uh, Maybe Steve's mother is Jewish? Well, I, it wasn't mentioned, though. What was mentioned was that it was Bear's idea, and she said that there wasn't too much religious imagery, and I thought we needed to do something to celebrate life. So this just seems to be something that they've decided to steal for fun. Okay. Um, okay. Which is bizarre. It's also kind of 
nuts to me because the reason why people like break a glass at Jewish weddings is to remember like the things that the Jewish people have suffered throughout history. You have to have yeah. that kind of like moment of Something. solemnity yeah. in a moment of joy. So to take that out of a Jewish context and say we did it to celebrate life uh, yeah. is just so bizarre to me. In August of 1982, the Soviets sent another woman to space, the experienced test pilot Svetlana Savitskaya. I don't know that this was because they knew that Sally was doing it and they wanted to like kind of do it just themselves but like I assume it was so launch is set for June 18th 1983 Sally receives good luck messages from Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor who was the first woman appointed to the High Court in 1981 Catherine Switzer who was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon as a registered entrant and Miss Piggy who is Miss Piggy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I like the idea that there's kind of this support group of like first woman to do this thing and Miss Piggy and Miss Piggy yeah. who is a piggy. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what her achievements are. You know, for... I'm sure she has them. I wonder if that still happens. If you're like the first woman to do a thing, do all the other first women text you and be like, "Good job, have a great day." Probably a Probably. bunch of them do. Yeah. yeah have to find a thing to do and test out the the theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bill came to the launch. As did Molly, who is now out and has a female partner that she brings Oh, oh good yeah. for Molly. So Molly, like, accepts herself and just, like, lives her life. I'm very proud of her. She I'm did bad. sound like, in the quotes you gave us at the start, yeah. she sounded like she'd, like, come a long way since yeah. where they were at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, Tam also comes to the launch, still just friends. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so have they just been friends the entire time? Um, they, I think, lose contact and then reconnect at some point. But they're friends at this point, yeah. Okay. And they sort of, like, whenever they're in town together, like, dinner. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that morning, Sally gets up, is driven to the launch complex, and rides 195 feet up the elevator to the shuttle. She's fitted with her helmet and hose and strapped in. They count down to the launch, and then at 7.33 a.m., the Sally ride goes to space. I was so not sure when you were, like, going through all the steps of this. I was like, is there going to be, like, a sticking point somewhere here and we're going to have to go back and she'll go to space next week? No, but she's I, in space now. She's just gone. Drama, <laughs> her parents watch her launch off, just completely stunned. Her father cries. Uh, Gloria Steinem is there and she says millions of little girls are going to sit by their television sets and see they can be astronauts, heroes, explorers and scientists. Lynn Sher, who was the biographer of mm-hmm. Sally and who was a journalist at the time, also mentioned that her mother, who was 79 at the time, was marvelled that she had personally seen humankind go from the horse and buggy through the car through to going to space. I mean, that's insane. It's that true. Insane. What a yeah. wild life, people who yeah. lived in that particular era led. Yeah. 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 And that just filled me with so much awe for what we're capable of. I love space. People are amazing. I really want us to go to Mars in my lifetime. That would be great. Yeah. We're trying. Half a million people watched the shuttle take off in the nearby vicinity. Some of them were wearing Sally Ride t-shirts. Some were drinking a cocktail called Sally's First Ride. (laughs) What's in it? What's in it? I don't know. I know it's rum-based, but I don't have any further facts. Maybe we can find out. I think we need to research this and then drink it. Yes. The radio played Mustang Sally, which has (laughs) the line, Ride Sally Ride. (laughs) It does. Lynn Sher, who reported at the time, signed off her report on it by saying, technologically, NASA is pushing towards the 21st century, but in human terms, it has finally entered the 20th. And for many girls and young women at the time, this was a landshed moment. Sally permanently shifted the boundaries of what they thought they were able to do with their lives. I wonder if we have statistics on like how many more women applied to become astronauts like immediately following this. I can't remember where I read this, so like, don't take this at face value. But I think I did read that there were programs, like science programs and so forth, that just visibly increased their yeah. Uh, yeah. engagement by young girls after this, which is amazing. So Sally's in space. Let's join back up with Sally. As you'd expect, the ride to space is quite rough. They were shaken about in their seats, but after two minutes, they left the Earth's atmosphere. The rocket split away, and the journey becomes much smoother. After two minutes? After two minutes. That's so fast. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Spaceships go very fast. They do. Sally holds her checklist in front of her and watches it float. (laughs) They're 184 miles high. They're traveling at 17,500 miles an hour. Sally, as a child, had loved going on the biggest, scariest roller coasters at Disneyland. And at the time, the tickets that you bought for those particular rides were called e-tickets. So she radios back to Houston and says... Houston, Challenger, have you ever been to Disneyland? And the person replies, <laughs> affirmative. And she says, that was definitely an e-ticket. And Houston says, Roger that. 
great. She is now on the biggest ride indeed. Mm. It takes time to adjust to the weightlessness. They have to relearn every action. Yeah. It takes them like five minutes to put something in their locker <laughs> at first, but they get the hang of it pretty quickly. They launch satellites. They continue to develop their understanding of the capabilities and limitations of the robotic arm. Sally runs on a treadmill while she's up there. She catches jelly beans out of the air. <laughs> she straps her sleeping bag to her locker and sleeps in midair waking up periodically to look out the window at Earth. That's so good. The shuttle moved at five miles a second, so it circled the Earth every 90 minutes. That's crazy. Sometimes they would look out the window and say to each other, what continent is that? (laughs) Uh, Sally said later that, quote, I could see coral reefs off the coast of Australia, a huge storm swirling in the ocean. I could see an enormous dust storm building over northern Africa, just unbelievable sights. I remember the first time that I looked towards the horizon. I saw the blackness of space and then the bright blue earth. And then I noticed right along the horizon, it looked as if someone had taken a royal blue crayon and just traced along the earth's horizon. And then I realized that the blue line, that really thin royal blue line was earth's atmosphere. And that was all there was of it. And it's so clear from that perspective how fragile our existence is. It makes you appreciate how important it is to take care of that atmosphere. When she returns to Earth, Sally goes on a publicity tour through America and Europe, giving talks and going to functions to promote NASA. She always struggles with these sorts of things. She's naturally an introvert, but she just kind of has to do it. Sally and her colleagues are invited to a meeting of the International Astronautical Federation, uh, and Soviet astronauts are also attending it. They're instructed to not speak to them, not be (laughs) with them, just absolutely have nothing to do with them. Okay. And so they obey. But during uh, the reception, Sally is tapped on the shoulder by Svetlana Savitskaya, who is one of the only other women to have gone to space, of three women at this point. And they congratulate each other, and Sally really wants to have a conversation with her, but is conscious that she could create an international (laughs) incident, and so they just sort of awkwardly have a conversation. So Sally feels really frustrated about missing this opportunity, and so she goes up to the Hungarian translator that she has become friendly with and says, you know, I'd really like to talk with Svetlana. Do with that what you will. (laughs) And he organises a gathering in a Hungarian astronaut's apartment, and so both Sally and Svetlana show up. Oh, that's so good. And they instantly hit it off. They compare their experiences of being in space, and they giggle as they mime the way that their arms floated. (laughs) By the end of the night, they have their arms around each other. They give each other a bunch of presents. Aww. Um, they never tell the government what happened. <laughs> they sneak away from it separately. and They, like, never... leaves for 15 minutes mm-hmm. apart. Yep. And she never gets to talk to Svetlana again. Aww. I'm so glad that they got to have a chat. Yeah. yeah. In 1984, Sally goes on her second mission to space. It's much the same. I don't want to say too much about it except for one anecdote that I really liked. So they're putting more satellites into orbit and on one of them, the solar panels failed to extend properly. And no matter how they tried to problem solve it, either from Earth or from the shuttle, they just couldn't get it to work. And so they decide to shake it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Sally does it. You know, they, they get the robotic arm holding the satellite. They extend the robotic arm out. And then Sally just, like, shakes the joystick <laughs> faster than it was intended to be shaked. And it works. And then they throw it into space. Cool. <laughs> yeah. In 1985, Sally starts a relationship with Tam O'Shaughnessy. So as I said, Sally and Tam had met as preteen tennis players. Tam was a better tennis player than Sally. In 1969, she and her doubles partner were number three in the country. Oh, wow. Tam played at Wimbledon once and at the US Open twice. But she left professional tennis at the age of 22. They had reconnected when Sally was getting her master's at Stanford. And Sally was writing for the women's sports publication, Sportswoman. Mm-hmm. Tam was working for the rival women's sports. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a like good lesbian romance story. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> rival sports writers. But one's also just an astronaut, by the way. Tam already knew and had accepted that she was gay. So Tam does refer to herself as gay, so with like Tam we can I think pretty just much know that she's a lesbian. When they get together, Tam is teaching eighth grade biology in Atlanta. She and Sally had dinner, as they did whenever they were yep. both in the same place. They would later say that they didn't know when exactly the thing between them had started but that night uh, Tam had reached over to pat her dog Annie and Sally put her hand on her back Uh, Tam said I saw the look in her eyes she was in love with me and I realised in that instant that I was in love with her too it was amazing we were absolutely stunned and then they stay together for the rest of Sally's life the end. This is so awesome. Yes. Yeah. So they're both delighted in the relationship they're very very in love Uh, 
Tam describes it that they were kind of both made stronger and were able to like develop more as people because of each other. Uh, it just sounds amazing. It sounds great. Yeah, yeah. I just love the way that this came to them in like one moment. She just like met Sally's eyes and she was like, whoa, wait, we're in love. <laughs> <laughs> we thought we were just friends having dinner. Because <laughs> of the dog. Yeah. I see, I see. They did spend a while trying to figure out like what exactly it was going to be, if this was serious. And they decided it was, you know, they, they became very deeply in love. If you remember, Sally is still married. Yeah, uh, I was wondering about that when she got buried. But... I'd just forgotten that. Steve. <laughs> I was just like, it's wholesome, they have a dog, they're in love. But yeah, I guess Steve is still here. She was married. Tam says about this, she was famous, she was married. I knew that NASA was very conservative and Sally was still an astronaut. And on some level, I just don't think we thought about it. We loved being together and we were very discreet. She certainly didn't want to hurt Steve. Which is just kind of bizarre to me, to be honest. So they yeah. just kind of like, eh, she was married, but we just didn't think about it. Sally and Steve seem to be living fairly separate lives anyway, and to yeah. some extent always had. Like, they're both astronauts. They're both just busy, I guess. They're both busy. In any case, this went on for a while, and then eventually Sally told Steve that she didn't want to be married to him anymore. And he was very upset by that, but replied that if that's what she needed to be happy, then that's that. And they divorced. That was, like... As well as that could go, really. Sally never told him about Tam. So in 1986, NASA had achieved 24 successful shuttle missions, put 21 satellites into space, and had 15 launches planned for the rest of the year. And they decided that they were going to send a civilian into space. Okay. They decided on Krista McAuliffe, who was a social studies teacher, and she is going to go out with six astronauts, including Judy Resnick and Ron McNair, who were also two of the 35 new guys along with Sally. Uh, um, why did they decide to do this? Why did they... Because NASA's funding depends on constant public interest. And as shuttle missions become more routine... Oh, they have to, like... Yeah. So she's a, she's a teacher because they want interest of children. Okay. Mm. Um, just a quick note about Ron McNair. He was the first African-American to fly. Cool. Uh, he was also a saxophone-playing physicist, oh. so maybe a candidate for coolest person. <laughs> Did he I'm play the saxophone in space? I don't think so, but he could have. <laughs> anyway, to change the tone of this conversation, the shuttle took off, and 73 seconds later, it exploded and fell into the Atlantic Ocean. Oh. All seven people on board died. Yeah. yeah. I never knew there was a civilian on board. There was, yeah. yeah. First civilian they put into space. Uh, they did not died. put into space. Yeah. Well, yeah, they did not put into space. So four of those on the spaceship were from the 35 new guys so Mm -hmm. sally has worked with them for eight years spent time at their houses she knows their families and also this is the shuttle that she has gone to space in Mm -hmm. her robot arm that she has become an expert in is at the bottom of the ocean okay so shuttle flights are suspended indefinitely after this do we know what went wrong with it well, Sally is asked to be on the Presidential Commission investigating the disaster, and it quickly becomes clear that the cause is failure of two O-rings, so that is 12-foot-diameter oh, yes. uh, rubber gaskets on the right-hand rocket booster, and they failed to remain sealed, and so they create a gap of only, like, a hair's breadth, but it's enough for hot gas to escape, and with the amount of heat and pressure that they're dealing with, it's fatal. Yeah. The report also reveals that NASA had been aware that launching in cold temperatures, so it was unusually cold that morning, could be disastrous, but they did it anyway. And it more broadly reveals problems with the culture at NASA, so the pressure to keep up with an unrealistic launch schedule, meaning that equipment gets signed off on before it's actually ready. Engineers testified that instead of the norm, like instead of proving that they're ready to fly without a shadow of a doubt, instead of having to prove that the technology is sound they're instead having to prove that it's not yeah prove to me there's a problem you can't let's send him up and seven people are dead one of the engineers spoke out and said that he had been at the launch decision meeting and he had said there that this is a problem and we can't set it up and then they're done anyway the two engineers who spoke about it were very much risking their careers they're ostracized Mm, after this and sally at the testimonies hugs them both publicly as a, a sign of solidarity their courage there's no more shuttles for two years after this good i hope they like took the time to overhaul nasa nasa (laughs) yeah to jump forward in time a little bit on february the 1st 2003 the space shuttle columbia lost contact with ground control when it re-entered the atmosphere and it broke apart and again seven people died i remember when this happened Mm. yeah Mm. sally is again asked to serve on the investigation 
into the disaster. And it's not O-rings this time, but it's a similar sort of accident, frankly. Yeah. So a chunk of insulation foam had broken off from the external fuel tank and struck the edge of the shuttle's left wing, punching a hole in the tiles that protected the aluminium. It didn't make a difference in space, but when they ran to the atmosphere, the craft couldn't maintain its integrity. And again, yeah. seven people died. And Sally found that there were very similar problems to the incident with the Challenger. Uh, issues with the foam had been found before and ignored and they were once again trying to push for too many launches to ensure safety. The report also found that a rescue mission could have been successfully undertaken, potentially with another shuttle, if they yeah. had decided to do so, but they did not. So they knew there was a problem, yeah. and they, they just, re-entered the atmosphere, and yeah. they just decided to do it anyway. Yeah. So I don't know if NASA's culture has changed significantly since, but given... It didn't change in the... Like... Two, I wouldn't bet on it, and that's disappointing. In 1987, to jump back in time, uh, Sally left NASA. Mm -hmm. In 1989, Tam moved to California to live with Sally, so they've been long distance up until this point, and they lived together for the rest of Sally's life. With Annie? I don't know what Annie's doing. (laughs) Annie's living her own life. Very independent. Okay, good for Annie. I mean, a dog's been to space before, so like dogs can do Maybe. anything. Can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sally went to work for Stanford's Center for International Security and Arms Control, which was a think tank focusing on international security and nuclear weapons. Uh-huh. Uh, so she was studying the verification of nuclear warheads and studying nuclear emission in space. It became like less of a big deal to study when the Berlin Wall fell. But yeah, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. After two years there, she got a job at the University of California, San Diego, as a professor of physics and director of CalSpace, the California Space Institute. I think a professor of physics had been to space. That would be intensely cool, yeah. It would be, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sally spent the rest of her life on science education for children. She founded Sally Ride Science to encourage young women and girls to go into STEM fields in 2001. So basically the organization was designed to address the fact that while both little girls and boys are both interested in the sciences at pretty much equal rates, yeah. uh, as they're exposed to gender biases as they get older, girls drift away from science until they're underrepresented in higher education and even more in the workplace. So the organization ran outreach programs and science fairs and teacher training and published books. It did all kinds of great stuff. Many of the children's books that Sally wrote, she co-authored with Tam about space and earth science. That sounds nice. That's so nice. So wholesome. It does. Sitting in their house writing like science books together. Yeah. Yeah. Like picking up pictures to put them and stuff. (laughs) She also developed EarthCam and its successor MoonCam, which were satellite-based cameras that could take pictures of the Earth and the Moon, uh, controlled by middle schoolers. Oh, oh, cool. Can we just, like, look this up? Like, is this uh, something we can access? I think, uh, or is it I think finished? EarthCam still exists. MoonCam definitely does okay. not. Okay. Um, I wanted to look at the moon. So what MoonCam was, uh, like, they didn't put a satellite into space just for middle schoolers. It's a very expensive thing. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, but a satellite that was going to be above the moon, kind of, like, studying yeah. lunar gravity it was, they put a camera on it. Yeah. And then eventually that satellite fulfilled its purpose and they crashed it into the moon. <laughs> so MoonCam... Is there somewhere, I guess. Is there too, yeah. Yeah. They named the uh, impact site after Sally. Oh, that's good. Uh, So CAM is spelled K-A-M, and it stands for Knowledge Acquired by Middle School Students. (laughs) (laughs) And it's designed to make science feel real and accessible to children, you know, making them feel like this is something that they can be a part of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At work to understand it, because they're like, just taking a photo of the moon or Earth is quite complicated when you're doing it via a camera on a satellite. It's also aiming to make them invested in climate change. I mean, honestly, if I were able to, like, go online and take photos of the moon for NASA now, I would do that right now immediately and be very enthusiastic. So I think this was a good call. Yeah. Yeah. During all of this, Tam and Sally had decided to keep their relationship private, partly because they thought that it would harm the success of Sally Ride Science. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tam says, we never publicly said we're gay. We didn't like labels of any kind, but especially the ones referring to sexuality, queer, lesbian, homosexual. Tam recalls that when she was young, um, she was warned to stay away from other tennis players who were rumored to be lesbians and feeling an unnamed fear about what that represented and what they might do to her. Tam said, The word lesbian still brings back those memories. I didn't even want to be called gay. And Sally thought the same way. Yeah. Now, in the, in the present day, Tam can recognize that they were dealing with internalized homophobia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do we know if Tam uses the word lesbian now? Um, I've definitely seen her... Like, use the word gay in context to refer to herself. Like, yeah. I haven't seen her kind of be like, as a proud lesbian. So, I, yeah, I don't know. yeah. Okay, okay. I do think it seems when I can see that she's, you know, just gotten more comfortable with yeah. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is 
publicly out now. Yeah. Joyce knew that Molly and Sally had been more than friends and accepted without comment that Tam would come with Sally to family gatherings. Uh, whenever she sent Sally like a Christmas card or something, she would include well wishes to Tam. So to some degree, Tam has been accepted in the family as Sally's partner. Joyce mm-hmm. just sounds so nice. I, I like Joyce. So Sally's father was a Republican, mm-hmm. a diehard Republican. He always voted Republican. And Joyce said, and I cheerfully went out and cancelled his vote every single time by voting Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Joyce. Thanks, Joyce. Yeah. So although Joyce understood that Tam and Sally were partners and quietly accepted that, they never had a conversation about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In 1995, they're divorced, so she'd been in a marriage with a man, and formed a relationship with Susan Craig, who is another Presbyterian minister, and who is her lifelong partner. Ah, oh, cool. So Sally came to Bear and Susan's commitment ceremony in 2000, and Tam had spoken to Bear about her relationship with Sally, but Sally and Bear never spoke about Sally's relationship or her sexuality. Together. Okay. That seems like a pity when, like, they're both queer women. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Sally remained very, very private. Close friends of Sally remember asking, you know, when she would have been, like, more than a decade into this relationship, saying, oh, are you seeing anyone? And her being like, ah, you never get relationships to stick. Or, you know, hearing Sally just be like, oh, Tam, my business partner, and so forth, when mm-hmm. they've been together for, like, over ten years. That's, mm-hmm. like, making me laugh, but it's also sad. It is. It, it is. Tam acknowledges that they weren't as open as she would have liked, but although she had made compromises in the relationship, such as not having their home somewhere that they could invite friends, yeah, um, mm-hmm. she never felt that she wasn't in control and that she didn't have a say in her relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In 2011, Sally was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and she started treatment for it. They didn't immediately tell anyone. It was a few months before they even told Sally's family. They immediately came to stay. But the cancer broke down the barriers surrounding their relationship a bit. So Bear is staying at their house and she comes upstairs in her sister's house for the first time and like sees her bedroom, which wasn't yeah. just taboo before. Some of their close friends are finally told that they're a couple, which for the most part it seems that they had kind of inferred. Yeah. It's yeah. nice to have that be openly shared. They also decided to register as domestic partners. So uh, Sally passes away before... Um, same-sex marriage is legalized throughout the United States. And this is both for practical reasons, so they can be as sure as possible that Sally's estate will pass to Tam, Yeah. Um, but also just because they wanted to have that closeness to each other. Yeah. And Tam and Sally also grew even closer as a result of Sally's illness. When they'd recently moved in with each other, Tam had asked Sally if she thought that their relationship was permanent, you know, we're we going to be together for the rest of our lives. And she very much had kind of asked that intending for Sally to be like oh yes of course yeah and Sally said no I, I really can't think that far ahead um I can only think five years ahead and she was like what <laughs> what and so it became a joke between them that every five years Tam would say so we're renewing on this we're renewing this. um but like towards the end of her life Sally said to her I wish that I had another 27 years with you Aww. and Tam says that was pretty good for her to be able to say that it wasn't five anymore we'd move to a new unit <laughs> So on July 23rd, 2012, with Tam, Susan and Bear around her bed, Sally slipped into a coma. Bear held her hand and Tam kissed her and told her that she loved her and Sally passed away. Before Sally's death, Tam and Sally had talked about what would happen after she died. Tam was worried about how she was going to present herself to the world Yeah, in mm-hmm. relation to Sally when Sally was gone. And Sally thought about it and she said, I want you to decide. Whatever you want to say... How much you want to say is fine with me. It will be all right. I've been thinking things over. Being open about us might be very hard on NASA and the astronaut corps, but I'm okay with that. Whatever you think is right is fine with me. And so Sally came out posthumously in her obituary. Mm, It was revealed publicly for the first time there that she and Tam had been a couple for 27 years. After her death, Tam is able to be public and is publicly accepted as her partner. I'm looking at interviews with Tam today, it's clear how much that means to her. So for example, President Obama decided to award Sally a Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest honour that an American civilian can be awarded, and Tam was asked to accept it on her behalf. It's obvious that this makes her so happy that she's able to be the one to be publicly recognised as her partner. And she said, I can breathe better. I can look people straight in the eye without blinking. I'm free because I don't have a secret anymore. I owe that to Sally. Whenever we have, like, nice queer women's stories, we come to the end and we're like, it's nice that they could, like, you know, functionally get married and live together and everything. 
the focus of this has been on Sally's achievements instead, which I think is also nice. It's mm. nice when... Yeah, the achievement isn't that they were a couple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not like they just lived their life and that was impressive at the time. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think it's also probably worth stating that, like, the story that gets told about Sally is how she, like, people put it in a lot of pithy ways, how she cracked the celestial ceiling and so forth, you know, how she made these youth yeah. strides for women mm. in America, which is true and fantastic and everything, but it is worth, I think, explicitly stating that she very much did that at the expense of another part of her identity. Yeah. Mm. yeah. she was born you know, at a time where the women's movement was such that she could take these steps forward and be the first American woman in space and so forth. And if she had been out as a queer woman, she would not have been allowed to go to space. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it's wonderful that society had moved on such that she could do what she did. And it's a terrible shame that society failed her to the extent that it did. Yeah. That she had to conceal such a big part of who she was to achieve the things that she did. I guess it is a positive then that we're able to talk about this posthumously. Mm. Yeah, it's good that Tam's able to talk about it and then we're not in this situation where we're like, we think this was the case, but we don't know. Like, it's good that we are able to just be like, hey, the first American woman in space was queer. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and as much as Sally's own voice is lacking from a lot of this because she was so intensely private, a lot of this, a lot of the details we know about this does come from Tam. And she's talking about her relationship with Sally to her biographer, to interviewers, or to whoever, which is good. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. If you like this episode, you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. You can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. If you would like to support this podcast, you can find our Redbubble where you can get our logo and put it all over your body or desk or walls or I don't know. Couch. Yeah. yeah. Space. Yeah. Space is launching into space. Yeah. If you're an astronaut and you want to take Careers Fact Merch into space, we'll give it to you for free. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I want to see it on the International Space Station. You can also go to our Patreon, which is also Careers Fact, and throw your spare change at us in appreciation if you so wish. As I said at the top of this episode, this episode was kind of accidentally chosen by our patrons. So yeah. this is the kind of sweet perks you'll get when one of us nearly dies and we need to pick an episode quickly. <laughs> If you would like to support us for free and, you know, in this economy, who wouldn't? You can just, you know, like tell your friends and neighbours and bus drivers and so forth about the podcast. Or you can, if you listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, review us there. That really, really helps us to find new listeners and a wider audience. So please consider that. To prove to you that other people have reviewed us and therefore it's a cool thing to do, I will read your (laughs) review right now. This review comes from Indigere. I don't know, I never know if I'm pronouncing people's URLs as they intend, and I never will. And it is five stars and titled Caring, Compassionate, Fantastic. Aww. It reads, You feel like a fantastic from across the seas queer family, mm. and are always exactly what I need whenever I'm feeling down. A bunch of queer people being unapologetic in their queerness, giving a queer voice to others across the centuries where they hadn't been given a compassionate voice before. Weirdly, I only ever listen when I'm having some big thumbs down mental health thing, but that's fully just a reflection of just how comforting and incredible this podcast is. Thank you so much for all the effort you put into researching and producing this. You should all feel really proud of what you do. Oh, that was so nice. Thank you so much, friend. I assume if you're listening to this, you're probably not having a great mental health day. So like... I hope we helped. Yeah, we hope this helped a bit. It was a pretty, like, pure episode. (laughs) Yeah. And I hope whatever's going on with you improves soon and we're thinking of you and we love you. Yeah. I'll read you one more. This one is from (laughs) Fizzfuzz. And is five stars and is entitled Love, Love, Love. It reads, I love this podcast so much for so many reasons. It's fun, well-researched, interesting, and relevant. History? Relevant? (laughs) (laughs) What will my parents say? (laughs) It also has an amazing appreciation for nuance around sources, language, and identities at different times in history, and the general complexities that come with researching folks who have been paid less attention to. I get so excited every time I see they've recorded a new podcast. Truly amazing to hear people from community discuss our history in such a respectful, knowledgeable, and accessible way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. That's very high praise. Yeah. I love when people compliment us on our nuance and complexity. Yeah. Because so often I'm like, are we too impenetrable? Are we too academic? Yeah. 
So we're faking it successfully. <laughs> I think especially being Taliburu accessible is good because, yeah. like, we all know, I guess, firsthand how difficult it can be to learn about history. Yeah. Mm. And hopefully we'll make that a little easier for people. learn about queer stuff. Yeah. Like, you and me have tried to read about gender theory so much. Yeah. We're probably easier to read than Bola. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're going to read out one more, and it's a bit of a long one, and we're going to do something new for the first time, and I'm not going to read it out. Okay. So who would like to? Okay, what's happening here? All right, I'll do it. <laughs> okay, this review is from, and I have no idea how to say this, Decello Leachy. From Australia. Oh. Hello, friends. Hello. Hello. Where are you? (laughs) (laughs) The title is This Podcast Makes My Heart Feel So Full. Five stars. It says, I have listened to every episode of this podcast and a review is long, long overdue. I like Queer as Fact and its hosts so much. A frankly silly amount. (laughs) It's just so full of warmth and love for the queer community. The topics covered are varied and interesting. The research is thorough and the information is presented in a well-considered way. I even really look forward to the lengthy discussions of sources and pronouns each episode. Oh my god. Every episode. Sorry, that's not this episode. (laughs) The hosts have an incredibly fun and engaging dynamic while still being very sensitive about difficult topics and expressing their well-justified frustration at times. Mm. Not only do I hugely... Please don't let Eli read this out. I can't handle the way he says huge. (laughs) (laughs) Nor can I. Nor can I. do I hugely appreciate hearing about queer figures from history and really enjoy the podcast for its content but listening to a bunch of Aussie queers hang out with their friends and have opinions on things feels like a warm reassuring hug. If I could change one thing it would be to give the creators a whole bunch of money so they could have more time and resources and get their hands on all the sources they don't have access to. Sadly my teeny tiny Patreon pledge will have to do but I have been promised their eternal love in return and what more could I possibly ask for? Oh, thank you. That was just hugely enjoyable to read. Thank you. That was thank just a you. huge compliment. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for being a Patreon supporter. That is amazing. And you do very much have our eternal love. It's Whenever true. someone's from Australia, it's like, are we friends already? Are we friends? Why are we friends? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll be back on the 15th of January when Irene will be telling us about Albanian swarm virgins. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you then.